Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 240th episode of the podcast. It comes out every week, and so you have 239 to catch up on if you are new to the party. But uh, what I do every 10 episodes is I interact with listener and reader feedback. So there is the podcast, which is what you're listening to right now, and then there is the website. The website's been around for much longer than the podcast, and so uh, there are more people that read Casting Across than listen to Casting Across. And so on these episodes, I interact with people who leave comments on the website, who email me, and who leave social media chirps. Although I'm really ramping back, is that the right way to say it? I'm really dialing back uh, my time on social media. I just don't really get too excited anymore when when I'm on Instagram or on uh, Twitter or anything like that. Uh, But I I still get those messages, and I interact with them individually, uh, every one of them, as to the best of my ability. But then every 10 episodes of the podcast, I like to kind of use that as a springboard to talk about those topics. Um, So that being said, uh, I mentioned earlier that a lot more people read the website than listen to the podcast, but that's actually kind of changing. Um, The same amount of people are reading the website. In fact, more people are reading it, but many more people are listening to the podcast in the last few months. I don't know why that is. Now, again, if you're familiar with Casting Across or with me or my writing or my podcasting, I am not the best marketer. Um, That's not why I do this. I want to share this because I think the stuff is worth sharing. I think it is interesting. I think that people who have uh, similar interests and uh, spheres of understanding as I do uh, would appreciate my perspective on fly fishing. And and more and more, I am really coming to appreciate uh, sharing information for new anglers or anglers who are branching out and, and exploring something new. So whether it be type of fishing, style of fishing, I've uh, 
been fortunate to have uh, time and uh, experience doing a lot of different things. Uh, maybe only a couple things really well, but a lot of different things and enough of the an educational background and a um, communication background that hopefully I can pass something useful off to you. So, but I think that the, the most important thing I want to share here is that I think this is growing because people are sharing it, not because I'm marketing it or doing anything particularly better or different in these last few months. And so if you are sharing it, then I really appreciate it. If you're sharing it with a friend that you're getting into fly fishing, you're sharing it with your child limited chapter. If you're sharing it on social media, I, I really uh, say thank you for that. Um, but if you, you haven't, you can do that. You can also leave a rating and a review on iTunes. I kind of brush by that really fast at the end of every episode, but it does matter. It does get the podcast in front of the eyeballs of, of people. And I am I have you to thank for, for when people Google fly fishing podcast that I do show up in that first page. So uh, I, I do thank you. Anyway, on to the uh, the interaction. So this is an, an older email, but it's from a judge named Adam. And Adam writes, Matt, I'm not a big public commenter, but I wanted to send a note to say I enjoy the content. Uh, regarding your blog on the Fly Shop with Poor Service, I didn't see it as negative, but rather as a customer perspective. As a small business owner, it's important to remember it is the little things. Safe travels, Adam. Well, Adam, uh, I emailed you back about this just to say that I appreciate you as a small business owner taking the time to email me about uh, the the website and the podcast. But I, I've written a few articles like this over the years, and I'm not exactly sure which one Adam is uh, referencing but uh, I, I have had a number of bad experiences at fly shops. And one of the things that I've noticed is that people will take one of two perspectives on bad service at fly shops. One is these people don't deserve your service like at all. And the other is these people are living such a hard life trying to eke out a living selling fly fishing gear that we really should cut them a lot of slack. I think it's probably something in the middle. I do think that, and, and I know this from working in a fly shop, and again, it was an Orvis company store. I didn't have the same pressure as a small business owner. It wasn't the same sort of situation where I was on the banks of a river and dealing with people that were like literally walking in seeking immediate advice and being angry if I didn't give it to them. But I know that there can be some difficult customers. I also know that it's a lot of fun to work in a fly shop, and a lot of the people I know in the fly fishing industry um, really relished their time when they were in the fly shop. So if they went from working in a fly shop to working working in a bigger corporation or working for a bigger company where they're now at a desk or they're even out on the water a lot. They do miss that time that's in a fly shop. And so when I have criticized service I've received in fly shops, first and foremost, I, I think it bears mentioning that I have not uh, dropped names of bad service. I, I I don't write bad reviews of gear. I just don't write those reviews. I don't uh, badmouth stuff. Um, it's just not what I want to add to the conversation. I will criticize things that uh, needs to be criticized, but uh, I, I haven't dropped the names of these fly shops that have given bad service. And I think that it is important for uh, fly shop owners in particular and fly shop employees also to really be the face of a community hub. Now, I know that's not necessarily what people have signed on to when they open a fly shop and certainly when they're trying to get their, you know, just over minimum wage by selling rods and waders and flies. But the good fly shops are fly shops that see themselves as part of the community. You might say that's not what they got in it for. I get that. But what separates a burger joint that is a flash in the pan, well, hamburger pun for you, from a burger joint that 
lasts, that becomes a place where people go. It has to do not with necessarily with the food, although it has to be good, not necessarily with the ambiance, although it has to be, you know, less than greasy. It has to be, it has to do with the fact that the people, people enjoy being there for more than just the thing that they can grab and go. Um, and, and the same thing is true for a record store. The same thing is true for uh, any other sort of establishment that anytime you can get people who want to be there, that is what is going to breed success. And so all the fly shops that I've been to that are just incredibly successful are the fly shops where people want to hang around. If you are basically running as an outpost of an online store, you're not going to have the same success as somebody who has is catering to people who are coming in. And the most negative experiences I've had in fly shops are fly shops where people didn't want me in there. Like they wanted me in there and they wanted me spending money and they wanted me out. Now, I talk a lot in this context, but under normal circumstances, I try to be on the socially conservative side of interactions. So I'm not chatting someone's ear off and I'm certainly not trying to, you know, bend their will into giving me their secret fishing stops. But you have to add something more to the package than just selling gear. Otherwise, the online retailer is going to win every time. So that is really at the core of my bad experience with fly shops. I can think of uh, three in particular, and it was the they were more interested in kind of making sure things were organized on the shelves. They were more interested in asking me if I if I needed help. But, you know, it's the do you need help? Like basically, what can I get you to get uh, rather than let's have a conversation? Um, those are the, the things that I have been most critical of. And again, I know not everybody wants to be everyone's best friend, and I'm not advocating that. I'm in the people business when I'm not doing fly fishing stuff. And I understand there's times where you're just not going to be super friendly. You've got business to do. But when it's a repeated experience, then that is the best way to lose a customer. So anyway, hopefully that is helpful for you, whether you are a fly shop owner or you are a fly shop patron. Um, and that's just positive feedback you can leave with somebody like, hey, you know, we really appreciate that you guys took the time to cultivate a space where people feel comfortable. I think that is a knockout way to have longevity in a very, very difficult space. All right, so look for the fly shops that do that and reward them by giving them your business. This email is from Steve, and Steve actually is not writing in reference to an article or a podcast I did, but a podcast that I was on. Um, and so he's, he writes, just heard you on Rob Snow White's podcast. I've been on that a few times. I don't know which one he, he was referencing, but I'm starting to read your blog. I appreciate that you said it's about people you talk and spend time with. That said, I find that unless you are in a drift boat, the actual act of fly fishing tends to be very solitary. Even when I'm fishing with someone, just the need to not tangle lines or hook someone in the face means that we're typically splitting up into different runs or riffles for hours at a time. So my question to you is how do you connect with people when you're actually on the water? This is a great question that really kind of strikes to the heart of a lot of what I talk about on Casting Across. I mean, I just mentioned the idea of community and relationship a few minutes ago. Um, I mean, this doesn't touch on how to catch a fish. This doesn't touch on how to cast. This doesn't touch on gear selection. It has nothing to do with any of those things. But I think for the vast majority of us, this is a question that is something we've thought about. Not necessarily the, the practical how-tos, but um, how do I combine fly fishing as a solitary sport, a solitary activity, with something that I want to bring people along with? And my simplest answer for Steve and for anybody is this. Uh, it, it's got to be in fits and spurts. You know, it's got to be a little bit here and a little bit there. 
um, I've found that even if we are fishing a good distance from one another, to take time and to check in with that person is a great way to have good micro conversations uh, to talk about fly fishing. And then when we both find it's nice to sit, and that's a that's a great thing to do. And I don't think we do that enough. And actually, I think that if you want to talk about practical fly fishing advice, then here's really where it comes in. If you are fishing with somebody and you both sit to talk, what you will inevitably do, because guys don't, and I'm not to say that you know all my audience is men, but a lot of people, how about put this way, uh, we, we don't necessarily sit and look at each other in the eyes when we're having conversations in the stream bank. What are we doing? We're watching the water. We're talking about who knows what. We're talking about um, money and politics and religion, right? Uh, and we're doing this on the banks of the river, but what are we doing? We're watching the water. We are analyzing the current. We are paying attention to insect activity. We are maybe even seeing fish move and fish feed. And so to have that deliberate time where you're not worried about a fly, you're not worried about a cast, you're not worried about a fish that might be a fish, it might be a rock, it might be a stump, it might be a, a fall fish, right? But you're sitting on the bank and having a conversation and watching the water. Um, that is a great way to connect with someone. And it's a great way to recalibrate yourself as you prepare to fish the next pool or that particular pool. Um, and this is also where you're going to find your, your best conversations and where fly fishing becomes that social lubricant where you not only meet new people, but you can deepen your relationships with the people that you are going fishing with. Then, of course, the time on the way to the river and the time on the way from the river, if you're carpooling, are also some of the best times. I got another email that I, I came across recently and it was asking, like, is it weird to... Uh, engage somebody on the river. And I would say no. I mean, people will give you that uh, body language that they don't want to be approached. That will happen. And that does happen. Uh, but I've found that maybe three out of four anglers is willing to stop and talk. Uh, I remember when I was a young angler, it's probably because I was you know, a teenager, but people were incredibly uh, proactive in talking to me, proactive in offering flies, making sure I had tippet and leaders and stuff like that. That doesn't mean that you go up to somebody and say, hey, can I have something? But I think that just indicates how people are willing to offer something if they have something. And it might not necessarily be a tangible item, but it could be a piece of advice. And I would say, again, you know, is is how to talk to people on the river the kind of fly fishing tips and tricks that you necessarily need in order to land fish? Maybe. If you're fishing somewhere new for the first time and you do happen to come across another angler, you know, be conscientious. Don't wade in right next to them. You know, don't scream across the water. Uh, don't uh, don't don't be a fool. Put it that way. But reach out and talk to them. If they are in normal earshot, then ask them a question. Um, ask them where they have fished and ask them where they're planning on fishing. So it might not, the, the first step might not be, hey, how can you help me? But hey, can I help you out by making sure that I'm not going to crowd your space or cramp your style with what you're doing? So these are ways, in my humble opinion, where you can deepen your relationship with somebody uh, when you're on the water, or you can instigate a relationship with somebody while you're on the water. And it may even lead to success on that day in that moment. All right. So uh, first two questions really didn't have a lot to do with like fly fishing right on the nose, but not a lot of casting across necessarily does. And so we're just going to keep things rolling with the third uh, piece of uh, feedback, which isn't even a question. It's a comment. 
Um, so JD uh, wrote in response to an article called Mere Conservationism. And I did an article called Mere Conservationism, and I did a podcast on this. And it was basically ar arguing for and advocating for taking a um, reductionist perspective to partnering for the stewardship of our environment right and in that i shared some of my convictions like my my most deeply held convictions as it relates to being a christian as it relates to being uh reformed as it relates to being just biblical and and having that influence the way that i not only see you know religion but i see everything including fly fishing and conservation and how there are times where people from my camp can be incredibly critical of people um of uh, a different worldview particularly a darwinian evolutionist one or maybe another another um, religion and while that needs to be held in one hand because of the nature of truth and how we talk about truth and how we interact with truth and how we live in a in, in a truth-based world in the other hand we need to work in a cooperative way because we are both here to accomplish similar goals as it relates to the stewardship of the environment and so, like I said, from people from my camp have been critical of people from the other camp, and people from the other camp have been critical of my camp. I know there's more than one camp, but uh, of course, uh, Christians have been uh, accused of being anti-science and all that nonsense, which, you know, rewind a few hundred years, see who is doing all of the real science, like capital S science, not like a lot of what we have going on today. But I digress. Anyway, JD says, um, awesome episode. Sounds like we have very aligned worldviews. And then Sola Deo Gloria, which is Latin for glory to God alone. But uh, I appreciate that comment from JD. I actually get a good amount of feedback in this arena of what I do on the podcast. And I don't necessarily share it because usually it is kind of brief. But I do think it bears mentioning, as I've said with about a number of things today, this is an important part of casting a cross. And it's an important part of casting a cross because it's an important part of me, of Matthew. Um, but of course, this is not something that I preach. This is not something that is explicit on casting a cross. However, it is in the DNA of how I communicate and what I write. It is the worldview that underpins everything. And so I guess my encouragement to you is uh, be analytical. You know, fly fishing, a lot of people want fly fishing to be a time to turn off. Uh, they want fly fishing to be a, a time to disengage. But I would encourage you, disengage from the right things. Stay plugged in to the questions you need to be asking, whether it be on the drive to the river or whether it be when you're on the water, whether it be by yourself or whether it be with somebody else, as we've kind of touched on earlier today in the podcast. Stay in touch with the most important questions of things that you're thinking about, things that you're wrestling with, and make sure that you're being consistent. Find ways to apply your worldview to what you're doing. Um, don't let, you know, your, this would be a great example. You know, if you preach the conservation of cold water resources, then don't use a can of aerosol spray on the banks of the stream. If you are all about conservation, then uh, make choices in the kind of packaging you use and how you dispose of that packaging. I mean, those are simple examples of how to be consistent. But the same thing is true in the way you think about resources, the way you think about fish and cold water and the protection thereof, the way you vote with the other um, uh, other priorities and other convictions that you hold. Aim for consistency and always, always, always spend time to be analytical um, about those things. So 
Thank you, JD, for that comment. And again, thank you for all those who do reach out to to do engage me uh, regarding uh, my faith and regarding how that plays a part in casting across. And if you are not a person of faith, well, let me take that back. Everyone's a person of faith. Everyone believes in something, right? If, if you believe in nothing, you believe in something. You don't believe in the absence of anything. Um, but uh, regardless of what you believe in, I'm happy to have that conversation because that is, again, another great point of contact, a great point of relationship of two very, very different people that uh, enjoy something good. All right, so there's three pieces of feedback that have really nothing to do with how to catch a fish. So I didn't want to leave you hanging. I did want to share one quick thing. So this podcast is being recorded in a thunderstorm. Uh, don't go fishing in thunderstorms. That's basic common sense, right? Last week's podcast was about staying alive by waiting safely. Stay alive by not taking a long graphite stick outside and say, hey, I fish fiberglass or I fish bamboo. Don't do that either. Just don't go outside and get in water in a thunderstorm. However, if you can time it right and you are watching your radar and you are confident that that storm is gone, go fishing after thunderstorms. I have had great success in fishing on spring creeks and on freestone streams immediately after thunderstorms, particularly smaller water, but even on larger water. There's been days where I've been sitting in my car with the rain coming down to the point where my very expensive waders and my very expensive coat are not going to keep me dry. And so I'm sitting in that car and I'm watching things clear up. And as soon as that lightning stops and give it a few minutes and the, and the you know, maybe a little bit of sun starts coming through or it just lightens up uh, because it's no longer those big dark thunderclouds. Go out there and start pounding the banks. If it's in the summertime, it's ants and beetles and crickets and hoppers and grass and jacids that are in the overhanging grass. Um, if it is in the late spring or if it's in the fall, then big chunky nymphs uh, up against those banks. And you will absolutely be impressed at how the barometer and the temperature and the water flow and the turbidity of the water all of those things come together to produce some really exciting results. I think that um, although fish are very in tune to their surroundings as it relates to day and night, I do think that the um, the darkness of a thunderstorm and the immediate turbidity of the, uh, the, the, the just the junk in the water getting stirred up because of things flowing into the river as well as the increased flow from the added water can play tricks on some of those larger nocturnal fish where, they'll, where they will move out to take advantage of the increase foodstuffs that are coming down past them. So um, spurred by the thunderstorm going on right now outside, I thought I would throw that out there uh, because, uh, like I said, not a lot of practical fishing information in this podcast, but uh, I still felt that it was worth sharing those three things. If you ever have a question, a comment, or some sort of accusation, please do let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. I would love to hear from you. This week on the website, the first article that came out was called Rusty Flybox Fighters. So Rusty Flybox is a series where I take three old articles from the back catalog of casting across years and years and years, back to 2015, I believe, and uh, I throw three of them that have a similar theme together for people to read. This week it was, or this edition was about hard fighting fish. So I share what I believe the hardest fighting fish that I've encountered on the East Coast is. I talk about the kind of fish that will ruin trout fishing for you. And then I talk about what kind of fish would win in a fight. So that was Monday's article. 
Wednesday's article is called River Apollo 5. So this is the fifth installment in the River Apollo narrative. Uh, it's, it's, I'm really enjoying it. You might think this is the absolute last thing I want to read as a story. I want to read How to Catch Fish. But uh, I, I'm really enjoying writing this. I'm excited to see where this goes. It is pushing me in some ways and it's freeing in others. Uh, but it is like a five to 800 words of narrative that has been stretched out now over five articles. So definitely check that out. I think you will enjoy it. And feel free to offer your feedback and constructive criticism. I did misspell a world word recently and somebody... I, it's funny to mispronounce spelling word. Uh, anyway, um, and somebody reached out to me to correct me, so that was great. This week's recommendation is actually based upon an article that really gets a lot of traffic. Um, a number of articles get a lot of traffic. The throwback gear review articles get a lot of publicity, and I'm sure that has to do with the way that like, when you write about something um, and your website has some prominence, then that topic, if it's like the newest version of that, rises up in the search engine or whatever. But I have these throwback gear reviews. So this is gear that's like 20, 25 years old, but I write about it because I'm still using it. So um, the Orvis Battenkill Large Arbor has gotten a lot of traffic this week, as well as the, the St. Croix Avid. So these are two pieces of gear that I've owned for over 20 years, and I still fish with them. The Battenkill uh, Large Arbor, it was one of Orvis's first Large Arbor reels. It was definitely its first Large Arbor budget reel. And the St. Croix Avid was a kind of a mid-range, mid-to-low-range um, medium fast flyer that St. Croix made, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And I just write about my experience with them, a couple of stories, but also why I like them from a performance standpoint. So all this is to say, um, buy secondhand gear. You can find stuff that is in just immaculate condition. Uh, whenever I write these articles, I kind of hop on eBay and hop on auction sites to see what what those items are going for. And pieces of gear that I mean, you you can't really judge a fly rod until you touch it. But if the cork looks clean, you you know it's probably in relatively good shape. But things are incredibly well priced. And although technology for rods and for reels and certainly for you know a lot of other pieces of gear have changed in the last 20 years, you can still find a lot of deals on gear from the 90s and early 2000s when there was this post river runs through it glut of gear that went out there at kind of high price points and people bought it at large quantities. You're going to be able to find some really good stuff. So if you have something in your closet and you have like the four weight and you really like it, see if you can find the five weight on uh, on sale on, on eBay. If you have the, you know, the smaller reel and you want to try to get the bigger reel for maybe some spay fishing or something like that, see if you can find that. Or if you just want a, a duplicate or a spare spool, you can probably find it out there. I've never gotten skunked when I've gone and looked for comps for the gear that I have to try to get what they're going for these days. So uh, I would suggest you do the same also. And it's fun. It's also kind of cool to browse around and see what gear looked like 25, 30 years ago. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Flashing podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.